from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? And the uh, Nashville Police Department has released the body cam footage of those harrowing moments where the uh, police officers valiantly entered and took out the shooter. And as you could hear in the sound that's playing, the uh, fire alarm was going off that that little girl, nine-year-old girl, heroically went to pull that fire alarm to alert authorities. And it, it, it's quite a video to, to watch these guys. You know, the shots are flying at them and they're going in. And again, that's their job. But it's great to see them doing their job. And it's great to see that they took out the um, the um, transsexual shooter that was killing children in a Christian school. Just absolutely atrocious. We're going to get to the bottom of that a little bit later with John Lott. I also want to talk about what happened earlier uh, down at the border close to the border, where some illegal immigrants set fire to a detention facility, killing 40 people after learning that they would be deported. This is according to the Mexican government. And that, to me, is eerily reminiscent to some of the things that happen in uh, China, right? As Trump would say, China. Now, I remember, you know, early on in COVID, they would create these uh, facilities to detain people for the sake of quarantine, right? They were very aggressive with the quarantine. I don't know if you remember. I know I remember because my um, family members that are hardcore conspiracy theorists would call me and say, that's coming here. The military is going to shut down the streets and they're going to force us here. And I mean, that never happened. Uh, but they were very, very aggressive. And they would put people in these makeshift tents, large tents, uh, field hospitals, if you will, and miraculously, surprisingly, there would be like some sort of collapse and everybody would die at these quarantine hospitals. Kind of like the building not too long ago. Now, this is not early on in COVID. This was, I don't know, seven or eight weeks ago when uh, they have video of the officials wearing, the, the Chinese officials wearing the hazmat suits, closing people in, locking them into a building that was on fire. Remember that one? So when I hear that now um, illegal aliens are in a building and the building is and they're saying, oh, no, they set it on fire. Yeah, of course, they set themselves on fire. <laughs> Who doesn't do that? Right. And again, it, it could it might might have well happened. But when I hear a story like that, I say, oh, my goodness. Is this what we're coming down to? Like, is this what the Mexican government is doing when they're saying, you know what? We don't want these people here. They, we can't we'll let them into the U.S., but we're not going to keep them here. If we're going to keep them here. Well, you know, we're going to torch them. And I, I don't want I don't want to be a cynic and I don't want to say that's actually what happening, what is happening. But I do want to say, man, it definitely goes through my mind. Right. And maybe it's going through yours, too, because this is one of those things where I say, look, it's it's uh, it's very unfortunate. And, you know, gosh, my, my my thoughts and prayers are with all of them and everybody who endured what they endured in Nashville and and every tragedy. Honestly, I don't wish tragedy upon anyone. But when you see things like this, you can't help but wonder and think, man. I think that's kind of what's going on. And and the border continues to be just as crazy as it has been. It seems to be getting worse, lamentably. That's that's what's going on there. Uh, let's see. There's a couple other things I wanted to uh, 
Let's see here. There was another story. We'll leave that one for a little bit later. Let me give you a quick rundown of what we're going to do tonight so that you have an idea. Uh, we're going to check in and find out. You know, we're going to get a little scoop on uh, Donald Trump indicted. No, not yet. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that again. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit uh, about the shooting uh, and the, uh, the legal perspective of it. Of course, the migrants setting fire to this facility. We're going to get to that. And I also want to talk about the... Um, Attack on Christianity, right? Because that's a part of the, the narrative here that I, I think we're, we're somewhat missing. You know, this wasn't just your average school shooting. It was it was a Christian school shooting. And I don't think that's that's one of those details. I mean, many would. Many would say, oh, well, it just happens to be a Christian school. There's nothing. There is no there there. I don't know. You know, I've been around the block one, three, many times. And um, I, I get the sense, like when they were shooting at the church, remember that? When that happened and the the, the ushers were armed and they took out the shooter. The guy was shooting because it was the church, right? It wasn't like he just happened to be shooting because he was looking for a large group of people. Oh, and they happened to be at church. No, they were shooting. Uh, th- this guy, this gunman killed the, the pastor who's uh, related to the church. And when I'm talking about when, let me just back up, ADD moment. When I talk about when you remember they were shooting at the church, I'm talking about church shootings that have occurred in years past. Now, going back to recent news, when uh, we talk about this particular shooting, the pastor who's associated with the uh, church that founded the school where the shooting occurred yesterday, uh, his daughter was one of the daughters, one of the nine-year-olds that was killed. So I don't know that that was happenstance. Okay, the authorities will uh, play coy until they're in court and it comes out and they figure out what's going on because, you know, their, their best witness uh, is is dead now. But it's my guess that this was um, very targeted and this is was something that they were doing because they didn't like uh, the people at the school. They didn't like the fact that they followed Jesus. That's uh, my guess, right? This is why they went after a Christian school. And there's an attack on Christianity, and we're going to get to the bottom of that in a little bit as well. Um, Lucas Miles is going to join us. He is a a pastor from South Bend, Indiana. His mayor used to be Mayor Pete Buttigieg, so he's always uh, a good guy to speak with. He's got a lot of great perspectives. We're going to talk with him later, uh, as well as Attorney General uh, Mark Burnovich from Arizona, former AG there. And then a little bit later on, we're going to get with John Lott, who is the uh, founder and president of the Crime Prevention Resource Center, probably one of the most foremost commentators on and researchers on guns in America. So we're going to do that as well. Plus your calls and more. We'll get to that. Uh, let me give you that number, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Now, there's a lot of other things I want to get to because as we look at how this uh, unfolds, interesting to me how – Everybody's kind of turning a blind eye to all of these other calls for for uh, violence. Um, you know, everything's okay, right? And 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 nobody wants to call it what it is. And it's I think it's an interesting turn of events where in the last four years you've had at least one trans or non-binary person responsible for one of these mass shootings. So it used to be it was the Republicans' fault, it was the Republicans' fault, and I'm sure it's somehow still the Republicans' fault, right, if you ask someone on the left. However, you look at it now and you think, man, could it be what we've been saying all along, that these people are legitimately suffering from serious mental health problems? Could it be that these mental health problems are getting worse with um, gender dysphoria being added to the mix? 
definitely a question I think we should ask. I don't think we should dismiss the question because we think it might offend somebody or we think we might uh, appear hateful or bigoted or or um, intolerant in some way when you start to see a trend, right? Because it was fine to say, is this purely a, you know, a white male thing? And, you know, right? It's, how many Puerto Rican school shooters have the, nah, not a whole lot, right? <laughs> Zero from what I can think of. And, and how many Asian American, like Indian or Pacific Islander, right? That, that, that's, that's not the, the trend, right? So when you have a trend, I think you want to go after the trend and figure out what's the story with the trend. And it could be just as simple as, you know, in that area, that's the majority. So it, you have more of a propensity for the person to be of that, you know, um, demographic based on sheer population. Okay, granted. But Still worthy of asking the question, in my opinion. Anyway, so we're going to get to that. We're going to find out about the Supreme Court case as well uh, from somebody who's sued the Biden administration plenty of times, Attorney General Mark Brnovich, and he's coming up next. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right there. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Do you support um, labeling these drug cartels as FTOs under U.S. law? Ranking member Graham, I, I have heard you speak of this issue as well. I share your view uh, 100 percent that these are ruthless, vicious peddlers. Well, do you support my efforts to make them FTOs? This, this is a decision that rests in the, in the okay. jurisdiction Fair. of the Department of State, and well, it is— a difficult question as to where the line well, between not, criminality, yeah. however vicious, yeah. and terrorism is not, drawn. Not, and not I'd be happy. Me. When I'm you sorry. kill 70,000 Americans, you have crossed the line. But, you know, that's not your bailiwick. So there you have uh, Senator Lindsey Graham uh, going at it with his uh, with his good friend Alejandro Mayorkas, the secretary of Homeland Security, who is uh, facing an impeachment in Congress. And um our guest, uh, former Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich, he knows a thing or two about Mayorkas, and he's sued the Biden administration time and time again. Attorney General Mark Brnovich, welcome, sir. Uh, thank you very much for having me on, Rich. You Appreciate bet, brother. It. Good to hear you, man. So, Great hearing let's, you. Uh, yes, sir. Let's let's um, let's get your reaction to this because I think that this is an interesting um, situation that we're in, where. Nothing seems to be happening, at least nothing good. And we, you've got Mayorkas, who seems to be asleep at the wheel. He constantly, in my opinion, lies when he's questioned by Congress, always has an excuse, will never take any type of blame for absolutely anything. And um, we've got migrants that set fire to this this facility today in Mexico. And it just things seem to be going crazy and getting crazier by the day. And the Supreme Court is hearing arguments in uh, U.S. v. Hansen. And it just seems like, will there be uh, some light at the end of the tunnel with any of this? Well, the problem is, is that the Biden administration has incentivized and decriminalized people entering the country illegally. And so, you know, the Hansen case is important, just so the listeners understand, is there is a case the U.S. Supreme Court argued yesterday whether the federal criminal prohibition against encouraging or inducing people to unlawfully immigrate to this country 
for financial gain by an individual is unconstitutional or not. So this is how crazy things have become, where the left, ACLU, all those groups are arguing basically that you should be able to advertise and make money off people illegally entering the country because they have a First Amendment right to do so. And of course, that's patently false, because at the end of the day, as you know, and you've talked about this, is that the cartels have seized operational control of the border. And clearly, even the Supreme Court has held in the past, if you solicit or encourage illegal behavior for profit, whether it's you know, a drug transaction or even a, a prostitution transaction, that is clearly illegal. And so we've gotten to this point in this country where now, when it comes to immigration, you can't even have a rational conversation. And I keep reminding folks all the time, Rich, I'm a first-generation American, and mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine any productive path to citizenship that begins with breaking the law. And so this case is all about whether you can prosecute and Joe Biden's not, but whether you can criminally prosecute people for encouraging and soliciting people to break the law, that is, enter the country illegally and make money off of it. Yeah, and then it's fascinating because I feel like, you know, I'm I'm a novice, right? I was never the AG of Arizona. I talk on the radio, right? I'm not the Secretary of Homeland Security. But I know that there's a ton of people coming through the border. There's smuggling going on. There's trafficking going on. There's drugs going on. So how is it that I know all of this? Yet when they ask Mayorkas just yesterday, are you aware that the cartels are using illegal immigrants to flood the border and sneak over dangerous contraband? He seems surprised. He's like, no, I had no idea. Right. <laughs> and, and there's a whole lawsuit going on in the Supreme Court. So it just it, it just boggles the mind that this is the situation we're in. Yet um, nobody seems to know anything, or at least our top guy at the border, the secretary of Homeland Security, is clueless. Well, first and foremost, and I've said this for the past year and a half, uh, Secretary Mayorkas needs to be impeached. And that's what Republicans in Congress need to be focused on, even in Democrats. Because when someone systematically is not enforcing the law and undermining the integrity and security of our country, they need to be held accountable. And, and that is the reality. And I mean, I, you know, we throw all these statistics. I mean, six million people have illegally crossed the border since Joe Biden's been president. I mean, let's put that in context. I mean, you're talking about the state of Delaware has, what, a million people? That's like six times the state of Delaware. And if you talk to Border Patrol agents, you talk to law enforcement officials, and I was a gang prosecutor in the past. I worked at DOJ. People know that what's happening is is that you have groups of migrants coming over, and they literally are, like, bringing over their carry-on luggage. I mean, you'll get more of a hassle going through, you know, the airport than you will illegally crossing our border. And they know that they're going to be let loose. Um, They're going to get benefits. They're going to get hotel rooms. They're going to get flown all over the country. And as Border Patrol, with their limited resources, is processing those individuals, the cartels take advantage of it, and they're flooding our country with poison. And that's what it is, Rich. It, it, It is poison. I mean, last year, 100,000 people in this country died of, you know, opioid and fentanyl-related overdoses. It's nearly two times the amount of people that died during the Vietnam War. I mean, so there is a war going on, and there's an invasion. And remember, I was the first and only AG thus far that said what is going on in our southern border constitutes an invasion pursuant to the U.S. Constitution. And so... 
And keep in mind, the cartels every day, it's estimated the cartels every day make $14 million off just people illegally crossing our border. But then when you think about how much money they're making off smuggling people and you throw in the amount of drugs that the precursor chemicals are coming from China and then they're coming here and they're flooding the United States, the cartels have made billions. They've made billions of dollars since Joe Biden's become president, since Mayorkas has taken over, and they literally are undermining our, not only our national security, but every day we pay the cost, not only financially and fiscally, whether it's in health care, education, you know, all the costs we're paying as a society, but we're also paying a cost and every day someone's life is being lost. And I keep telling people that it's hard to imagine any productive path to citizenship that begins with breaking the law, because the United States obviously is all about the rule of law, and people are fundamentally undermining it, and Secretary Mayorkas has blood on his hands. He is responsible for dead Americans. He's responsible for places like Yuma, Arizona, having to spend tens of millions of dollars on health care for people that have entered the country illegally. And ultimately, it's undermining our quality of life. And most importantly, it's undermining the rule of law and the very thing that makes us Americans. Folks, we're on with uh, former Arizona State Attorney General Mark Burnovich. Um, he is... Uh, He's got a great record. Tell us a little bit about that record before we uh, stop for the break really quick. Um, I think you you did really well. You had uh, several cases uh, where you sued the Biden administration, right? Yeah, well, no one sued the Biden administration more than I did. And, you know, frankly, the Biden administration has shredded our Constitution. And so I'm very proud of the fact that I was the first attorney general that sued Joe Biden over the illegal mandate, vaccine mandate. And, you know, now there's a lot of questions being raised, even in the mainstream media, about the vaccines and what's going on with it and the whole China virus. But the reality was is that I sued President Biden because I said, look, no president has the authority to make you inject some, you know, experimental vaccine into your body. And this was all about, um, you know, control. And but I was all about the Constitution. I was the first AG that successfully sued Google in state court. I took on big tech. You know, I made sure that when I sued Joe Biden and personally argued with the U.S. Supreme Court against, you know, the public charge rule where President Biden and his administration wanted to give public benefits like welfare. General, people who hang on right there. We're coming right back. Mark Burnovich, Attorney General of Arizona, and me, Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere. It's America at night, and we're coming right back. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Act. These are weapons of war. 
I'm a Second Amendment guy. I have two shotguns. My sons have shotguns. You know, but our states, you know, everybody thinks somehow the Second Amendment is absolute. You're not allowed to go out and own a, an automatic weapon. You're not allowed to own a machine gun. You're not allowed to own a flamethrower. You're not allowed to own so many other things. All right, that is uh, President Biden today earlier making these comments saying you're not allowed to own a lot of things, man. It's not a joke. I'm serious, Jack. And Whoopi Goldberg has joined him. Everybody's chiming in saying the Constitution is an absolute. And uh, our guest is a former Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich. General, what do you make of President Biden and so many on the left moving to continue to shred the Constitution in light of this tragedy? Well, it's a republic if we can keep it, as um, Benjamin Franklin famously said after, um, you know, the convention. And the reality is, is that in times of crisis, that's when we need our constitutional rights the most. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we were talking about right before the break, when I sued President Biden over the unconstitutional vaccine mandate, you know, that was all about the fact there, you know, there was a lot of people who were panicking. We were shutting down businesses. And I said, no, wait a minute. You can't do this. You don't have the authority to do it here as, as the governor tried to do. I tried to, you know, we weighed in trying to stop him. But we also weighed in trying to stop the federal government because once you cede that authority to the federal government, you will never get it back. And so we need to be really, really careful. And at the times of crisis, in times of tragedy, that's when we need our constitutional rights the most. And we've seen throughout our history, and you look at you know, even cases like Korematsu, the U.S. Supreme Court case dealing with the internment of Japanese Americans, is that you know, Earl Warren oversaw that. And you know, he's this great liberal justice. He wasn't on the Supreme Court at the time. But the point is, is that um, you know, in times of crisis, that's when we need our constitutional rights the most. And one of the greatest threats right now in our country and you look at what's going on in education, and you and I can talk for hours, whether it's education, whether it's guns, whether it's public health, safety, welfare, is that even Republicans sometimes get caught in this trap where they want to nationalize every problem. And the, and the, the big concern I have with that is not only the constitutional issues related to it, but once you see that authority, once you give government the authority to do something, and you look at what's happening in education, Government starts spending money, and then they dangle it over the states, and they say, oh, if you don't teach these, this crap critical race theory or 1619 project, we're not going to give you money. And it's our money to begin with as taxpayers, and we can't cede that authority to the federal government. And so, look, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer. My philosophy is this, and I've said this from, you know, even, even before I ran for AG, is that, you know, God, guns, and guts made America free. We need to keep all three. And the reality is, is that we have a mental health crisis in this country, and that's what we need to address. And, you know, my goodness, uh, I say this to the media. It is absolutely terrible. It's a tragedy what happened in Nashville. But the fact that people are talking about this person's, you know, and I won't even say their name. I never say any defendant's name, even going back to my days as a prosecutor. But the fact that we talk about these people, we give them notoriety. We give them what they want. They're losers. And we give them what they want they couldn't attain in life. And so I think the media bears some responsibility. I think that the culture we live in where we glorify, you know, violence and we undermine the family, you know, that contributes to the mental health crisis. And at the end of the day, 
as a society, we need to stop stigmatizing mental health issues, and we need to make sure that people that have mental health issues, you know, get the help that they need. Yeah, you're right. And folks, again, we're on with uh, former AG uh, General Mark Brnovich uh, from Arizona. Let me ask you this, because I know that you sued them over vaccines and you sued them over the border and their constitutional authority, but you also sued Biden over Google and and big tech. And, and I'm looking at a um, at a, a headline from a couple hours ago of all places, Al Jazeera, and says that the United States uh, says that China may spy with TikTok, but uses Google to spy on the entire world. And it's interesting to see how this is coming out there. You know, it's a split issue. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, I think it's uh, it, 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 TikTok is bad. Others are saying, oh, it's not so bad. Republicans should loosen up. Where, where do you fall on this? Well, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm the only AG that successfully sued Google in state court because they were spying on us. And, and you know, I used our consumer protection laws to basically make the argument that, you know, what they were doing, they were collecting information, they were manipulating that information, and they were treating individuals like commodities and manipulating them even when it came to the news feeds. And so, you know, we ended up getting a settlement with Google in state court, which was the largest settlement in the country and, frankly, was more than twice what the country of Australia got. And so I think big tech is it's like a, it's like a knife, right, Rich? I mean, a knife can be used for good. You can cut up your vegetables, you can use it for self-defense, but it also can be used by some nut job to stab somebody. It, it, it is a, uh, a weapon, but it's also a tool. And so same thing, I look at big tech the same way, where we know that big tech is you know, essentially spying on us. They're essentially manipulating us. But at the same time, you know, people use big tech every day. So my big thing is I've always said is that People need to have skin in the game. And so, you know, when you look at the, the federal laws that provide protection to these companies, and when they can sit there and, you know, host and allow, you know, Islamic extremists um, or, you know, nut jobs to post videos and, you know, promote whatever they want online, um, they can do that. But at the same time, then they say they can't stop, you know, whatever, some other, you know, thing from going online. Um, it just shows you that they are selective and there's a left-wing bias when it comes to big tech. And just to, once again, to put this in context, when, you know, uh, Standard Oil is broken up the Rockefellers, people talk about big trusts and everything else and the power. I mean, Google now controls essentially 90% of the searches, your search engine, people's search engines when they're online. Um, that's actually more of a market share than Standard Oil had when they were broken up because they were too dominant and too big. And so the problem becomes you get these tech companies that have a left-wing ideology, and they're essentially putting their fingers on the scale, and they're manipulating what you see. And a lot of times, most of the time, people don't even realize they're being manipulated. So let's say, for example, if um, you know you're somebody that's a moderate and you you're not sure what you think about the second amendment well you'll start seeing more and more feeds that are you know showing you know gun violence and you know advocating essentially a certain position and so i think that you know big tech um is a danger because it is being used to manipulate us we saw this during the 2020 election cycle we've seen another election cycles and so you know as conservatives as principal conservatives you know, you've got the higher education establishment, 
you've got the media, and now you've got big tech essentially undermining all of your values. And so the big thing about TikTok is I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. I think TikTok should be banned in the United States because it's clearly a tool of the communist China. Chinese Communist Party. I think we all agree to that. But my big concern is sometimes some of these Republicans in D.C., they're willing to pass statutes that give the federal government too much authority and the ability to spy on us. And so we have to be really, really careful that we don't end up in a situation where because big tech is manipulating us, because TikTok is essentially a tool, an agent of the Chinese Communist Party, we need to make sure we address that, but at the same time, we don't want to have the f- open the door for the federal government and people like the Biden administration spying on hardworking, everyday Americans. And so that's where you need principled rule of law conservatives in government in D.C. that fundamentally understand that and just don't vote for stuff that, quite frankly, in the long run, undermines our fundamental liberties and values. And so, look, I mean, let me just last thing on the the TikTok stuff. Look, I mean, we know that China, when it comes to trade, when it comes to American companies, you know, they steal our technology. We know that they're spying on us. We know that essentially the Chinese Communist Party has been at war with the United States for essentially 25 years, uh, maybe longer. And they are playing a long game. They're providing precursor chemicals to the cartels to poison our kids. And at the same time, they're stealing all of our technology. And so, look, if I were in the federal government, what I would say is, look, if you want TikTok here, the servers need to be in the United States. If you want TikTok here, you need to make sure that they're not spying and collecting information. They're not manipulating us. And you need to make sure that American companies have the same access to China that we're giving to them. Because China is playing by a whole different set of rules. And they're playing you know, a long game. And they're trying to undermine American values. And I think that there's too many people, even in Washington, D.C., that just don't understand that. Well put, sir. All right. And um, we're on with former Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich. Uh, General, stick with us. I want to ask you a couple of more things, some uh, legal questions that I have. We're going to take a quick pause right here. Give out the phone number. 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez, who again will do a fine job, but I know you'll enjoy listening to him. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. Our guest is former Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich. Uh, General, I'm looking at a headline from NBC News. It says, New York grand jury not expected to vote on possible Trump indictment this week. And I've got to say, I'm beside myself with this because I, I really just don't know. Are they bringing the case? Are they not bringing the case? Were they thinking of bringing the case? And then this all exculpatory evidence came out, and now they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know to do, where to put their faces. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I learned a long time ago as a prosecutor that if you're not dealing with the case, it's always hard to comment on it. So let me just talk about this generally, though, is that I think the New York DA uh, made a big mistake. When you sit there and you sit there and say, I'm going to indict somebody or I'm going to go after somebody, that completely undermines your case. I think that's not only unethical, but it, it 
you know, obviously is not proper. And right. that's one. And two, um, you know, look, the reality is, is that we have weaponized, now we, there are people that are weaponizing the criminal justice system throughout this country. And I'm a first generation American. My family lived through World War II. My parents, they lived through communism. And so when you're the government, when you're a prosecutor, and I spent much of my career as a prosecutor, you can take away people's livelihoods, life, liberty, property. So you don't just throw crap against the wall and see what sticks. And I, it, it breaks my heart to see all these DAs throughout this country that are systematically ignoring crimes, like in places like Cook County and in San Francisco, where they're not prosecuting people for actually breaking real laws like stealing and robbing. And that's why you're seeing more of those crimes and even crimes of violence. And then at the same time, you know, your people are talking about something that happened years ago that, you know, was a paper crime and, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly what happened or what didn't happen. Any good prosecutor worth worth their salt understands you don't throw strap you don't throw crap against the wall and see what sticks. And what's happening right now with a lot of these left wing DAs is they're ignoring real crimes like homicides and robberies and you know systematic you know break ins and stealing. And instead, they want to politicize their office and go after their political opponents. And so. You know, the left has weaponized the state bar process all over this country, mm-hmm. and now they're trying to weaponize these DA offices. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, this should cause you concern because we're not a third world country. You shouldn't be prosecuting your political opponents. And I just worry that that's what the attorney general in New York has done. And I worry that's what the district attorney is doing in Manhattan, where they're trying to score political points for themselves personally. And they're essentially prosecuting cases where they don't even think they can win because they don't have the evidence, they don't have the facts, but they just want to do it for political reasons. So I think that's very, very dangerous in a country like the United States. All right. And let me ask you, uh, General, what are you up to nowadays? Um, What's the next step for you if people want to keep in touch with the work you're doing? Where do they go? How do they follow you? Well, they can go follow me at generalburnovich.com or General Burnovich is my Twitter feed. And, you know, the reality is, Rich, is that um, the Democrats, the left, has filed a bunch of bar complaints against me. So, you know, I'm, I, you know, this is what they do. It's not enough that they yeah. want to win politically, but they, they attack you and they try to destroy your livelihood. And I'm a little old school. You know, you don't screw around with someone's spouse or their livelihood, but that's what the left does. This is the old Sal Alinsky model where they define, demonize, and destroy. And that's what they're doing with any conservatives. And it's not just me. It's people that work in my office or worked with me. And so um, I'm having to deal with some of those bar complaints. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to get back into public policy. I'm going to get back into writing. I took some time off. Um, you know, spent some time, you know, traveling with my daughters and my family. And at the end of the day, um, you know, family is the most important thing. And that's what we need to focus on. And that's what I've tried to focus on and, you know, taking a step back. But, you know, I'm going to continue to be in the fight. I'm going to continue to talk about important public policy matters, including, you know, federalism and the rule of law and pushing back against the overreach of the federal government, regardless of who's in charge. Outstanding. Well, uh, you're always welcome here. I appreciate your analysis and your insight and um, the conversation and for staying up late, right? Well, it's not too late for you if you're in Arizona, but it's <laughs> well, late here on the you, East Rich. Coast. Thank you, Rich. Rich, you're a good man. Thank you very much for having me on. I look forward to being on it again. There's just so much 
crap going on right now in the country that we need patriots. We need people to stand up and be consistent when it comes to the rule of law and the Constitution. Amen to that. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, there is more to come straight ahead. Your calls and more. 833-4-VALDEZ. 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Let's go to Elyria, Ohio. Let's check in with John. John, welcome. How are you, John? How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Good. What radio station are you listening to? I'm listening on WNIR. All right. Great station. Uh, so what's on your mind, brother? I have I have two questions, and I can't find really clearly stated numbers on the web, so I'll ask you. And if your guest is still there, maybe he can answer. My first question is, how many migrants have been turned away or expelled since Biden took office? And my second question is, how many migrants have been turned away or expelled since Biden took office for reasons other than Title 42? Hmm. I couldn't answer that one. But I can tell you that from the information that I've I've seen, you're looking at about 100,000 a year have been deported by ICE and the number keeps going down, right? Each fiscal year. Uh, so 21, 22 and, um, and the current year. And it, it's, uh, you know, I'm looking at this right here. Check this out. By 2022, the first full fiscal year of the Biden administration, the target had dropped to 91,500 and just over 38,000 had actually been deported of those that were scheduled to be deported, right? So very few removals, you know, you're talking about half of that or less than half of that 100 grand or or, or 90 uh, number. And then the, the other number, the bigger concern that they have is not the ones that get deported because obviously they're not here. It's the ones that they know come in and don't stop and ask for any asylum assistance. They just disappear. They're gone with the wind. They make it across the border, and they're known as gotaways. And that number, the official number, is 1.2 million gotaways since Biden took office. The sad part is many people are saying this is incredibly underreported and that this is actually probably two or three times the actual number. Recently, I heard somebody estimate that it was probably around 5 million so this is one of those things that to me, I think, man, if on paper it's 1.2 million that we know are in the country, not asking for any support, uh, not asking to, to be relocated, not asking for a bus ticket anywhere, just, you know, no, 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 no conversation other than we know they got here. Uh, I think we're in pretty bad shape, John. All right. I thought John was still there, but he's not. Anyway, we're going to continue our conversation and we're going to continue to take your calls throughout the evening. Uh, But straight ahead, we're going to talk about the attack on Christianity with Lucas Miles. He's a pastor in South Bend, Indiana, and he's got a brand new book. He's going to tell us all about it. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here. I'm Rich Valdez. It's America at Night. and We're just getting started. Don't go anywhere.
from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Our telephone number, if you want to join this late-night national town hall, we are live. Give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And if you want to chime in online, that's at Rich Valdez with an S on all of the social media. Now, I want to talk about a bunch of things. Obviously, we've been talking about the school shooter. We've been talking about what's going on in Washington, Biden, the border. There's a lot to discuss. And one of the key themes from yesterday's attack was that this was an attack not only by a transgender shooter, but on a Christian school. And I think that part gets lost in translation. And overall, I think there, in my opinion, there's, there is and has been an attack on Christianity for quite some time. And I, I mentioned this the other day, I mean, even as, as far back as Marx's, Karl Marx's earliest writings, he discussed how important it was to disassociate yourself uh, from, from the church or from, from God in order to, in my opinion, to move forward with this new ideology, this new religion, this new worldview that he promoted in, you know, which we now know today as Marxism. Um, so I want to talk about the attack, right? The attack on Christianity, the attack on, on, on all of uh, things good and holy, in my opinion. And the author of the book, Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroying Christianity, is probably the best person I could think of to walk us through that. And that is Pastor Lucas Miles. Lucas Miles, welcome to the program, sir. Rich, thanks for having me on. You bet, brother. So let's uh, let's get your reaction, a to you know this this shooting and and the overall attack on Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean, we are seeing a um, a really uh, concerted effort to uh, you know attack the church both ideologically. But then we also see things like what we saw this week with this this shooting in Nashville, where it's it's actually you know in vi- violence that's being incited against Christians and Christian institutions. And if this were a mosque, if this were uh, um, you know any other religion that this happened to, we'd be talking hate crimes that would be all over the news. But you're not hearing that right now. What you're hearing is gun control and you know assault assault weapon bans and these sort of things. But this is a hate crime, and that's exactly what happened. And I think it's important that we don't overlook that. Yeah, I agree. And, and it, to me, it seems like there are hate crimes like this on the rise. And uh, I mean, I'm just you know cursory search on on everybody's least favorite search engine, and you see that there are Palestinian Christians saying that there's an anti-missionary bill. Uh, in Israel, that is um, the latest mm-hmm. attempt to squeeze them out. Uh, you've got another story uh, in the Christian Post, a pastor saying that him and his son were beaten by extremists and the church was destroyed by Muslim extremists. This uh, happened uh, just about less than a week ago at an all-night prayer vigil. Uh, this, this is not new, but it also doesn't end. 
So let's talk about the attack on the church and your new book. Absolutely. What so, inspired you, know, you to write it? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm here in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, I have seen for some time now, and really been warning about this probably since 2012, 2014, of this rise of progressive Christianity. My last book, The Christian Left, uh, did did very well and, and was an opportunity to kind of get the, the word out there about helping people understand what what uh, the Christian left is or progressive Christianity. You might also hear it called conscious Christianity. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when, when I put that out, it was a new thing for a lot of people. They didn't, they, they, they weren't at a point to where they could hear the, the nuances of it or, or really be able to pick up uh, all of the doctrinal differences on a given message on a Sunday morning. Uh, but here in our market, although Indiana is a triple majority red state, South Bend, the, the city that I'm in, is a, you know, we have a blue county. Uh, there's, it's been probably 60 years that we've had a Democratic mayor. Uh, of course, you know, a lot of people know the name Pete Buttigieg was our mayor for a time. And I've seen this rise of progressive Christianity. We have a university uh, here that, that many have called Catholic in name only. And, uh, you know, we have uh, our churches here very much been affected across virtually every denomination. And so I feel like in many ways we kind of saw this early in the nation before it hit some other other regions. And so we started warning about that. And I really saw after I put out the book, The Christian Left, that there was a need to explain more about where this came from and to give people some additional tools to be able to, you know, kind of really dismantle uh, the fallacies of progressive Christianity and and the Jesus that it presents, and that's that's really why I wrote Woke Jesus. And let's dig into it uh, because I think it's a it's an important topic, and it's uh, kind of almost sequential based on your other books. Uh, how does this one uh, how how does this one stand apart? Absolutely, and I you know I, we haven't positioned it as a sequel, but in my mind, it's very much a continuing of the conversation. In right. Woke Jesus, I start with the history. And, you know, the Christian left is more of kind of current events throughout. And, uh, but Woke Jesus, we, we really go back to where this came from. We talk about Gnosticism. We talk about Hegel, uh, Marx. We talk about, you know, uh, I write about the, uh, the Frankfurt School and sort of the progression of this. And when you understand that behind progressive Christianity is, and you mentioned this in kind of your intro for me, is this, this Marxist undertone, that there is, uh, um, really this drive between oppressor and oppressed and this, you know, uh, a division of people. And, and, and we see that in, in uh, kind of the uh, early forms like liberation theology in the Catholic Church right. uh, or black liberation theology, uh, with James Cone's ideology that came out in the 1950s. Um, and then we see that all the way really into, you know, some of the, uh, some of the forms of critical race theory and, and now critical queer theory that's coming out. But the interesting thing that's happened is that these, these, in many ways, kind of godless ideologies like critical theory and critical queer theory have, have sort of modified themselves and, or almost uh, attached themselves to Christianity as sort of this, this, in this parasitical relationship. And it's formed this new uh, sort of pseudo-faith that we're calling, you know, uh, progressive Christianity. And it is, it's being presented as a more biblical form or a, or a better presentation of Jesus. And ultimately, though, the Jesus that, that wokeism presents is, is, you know, he's the great social organizer rather than the savior of the world. It's what I call a terrestrial Jesus, a, a Jesus where his, his humanity is elevated 
Uh, but there's no talk of his divinity, heaven and hell, the authority of the word. All those doctrines have been thrown by the wayside in order to elevate sort of this socialist Christ that's being presented. All right, folks. And again, we're on with uh, Pastor Lucas Miles. He does a lot of things. You've seen him all over the place in the media. He's, uh, he, he's terrific on this topic, and we're going to continue with him straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Plus your phone calls, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Welcome back, America. Rich Valdez. Our guest is Lucas Miles. He's the author of Woke Jesus, the False Messiah Destroying Christianity. And we don't have to look too far to see how woke Christianity uh, is affecting America. All we got to do is look at a former Christian school student turned uh, transgender shooter and murderer. And it's absolutely unfortunate, but that's not the least of what we're seeing. There's plenty of it to go around. Uh, Pastor Lucas Miles, as we look at what we're seeing in the evolution of society and how woke Christianity is pretty much uh, having its way with the traditional church in, in many instances, sadly, uh, but we see it with respect to racism and, and sexuality and what sin is and, and the idea of uh, the fundamental tenets of the church, where do we go from here? I think that's a great question. I think that's the question that a lot of people are, are are seeking out right now. I mean, wokeism has affected virtually every denomination of Christianity in America. You know, what used to be maybe just these these uh, sort of radicalized you know churches on the left, we're now seeing community churches and mega churches that are preaching things about white fragility and and uh, um, you know critical race theory and or critical queer theory. And so I think that Christians and conservatives have to be very vigilant. They have to make sure that the church that they're attending is, is holding fast to uh, biblical ortho- orthodoxy, that, uh, that their pastor is committed to the Bible as the Word of God. Uh, we've actually started a movement called uh, the American Pastor Project. The website's AmericanPastorProject.org, where pastors and church leaders can go there and sign a commitment to biblical orthodoxy across all and any denomination. And, and, and a commitment to reject and eradicate wokeism in the American pulpit. And we really wanted to launch this alongside of the book to, um, you know, just to, just to give people an action step, that this isn't just about ideologically understanding that wokeism is bad, but we have to be able to rid the church of this. This is a heresy like the church has faced so many times before, but so many have been deceived by it. And I think it's really vitally important that we help people to be able to understand this, to be able to walk away from it, and ultimately to be able to reject it uh, in a church near them. You know, oftentimes um, I, I hear people telling me, look, don't, don't shove your faith, your values down my throat. I just want to live my life as a, uh, uh, as a deist, as an agnostic, as an atheist, uh, whatever. You know, I, I just want to do me. I want to do my thing. And you do you, but don't, you know, don't make it um, an imposition on my lifestyle. 
And and I'm sure there's certain people listening right now that are like, look, Rich, I love your show, but you know, I'm, I'm I, I don't I don't I don't go to church. I'm not a Christian. Uh, help every one of those people understand why this matters to them. Absolutely, and I think that's I think that's a very very important point. So what we see here is that the game has changed. It's not just that there's you know red light districts and dark corners of society where people want to carry out a certain lifestyle that they want to do. That that's what used to happen. Now what is what is going on is that that these alternative and I believe you know very damaging lifestyles are being forced on people groups, individuals, children in many cases that uh, uh, that that you know aren't looking for this. There there's literally. Within the church, we're seeing, you know, I don't necessarily have, have to have an opinion about somebody who wants to go live, you know, some sort of sinful life on their own. But when you come into the church and you start saying, no, this really is Christianity, Jesus was transaffirming. You know, I've seen people, you know, the right. TikTok video that went around saying that, that Jesus was likely gay because he called the, the, his disciple John his beloved. You know, and so you get these just ridiculous claims that are being made. And once that stuff starts entering into the church, it's the job of the Christian to clarify that and, and to really you know, uh, uh, ensure that the, the gospel is kept pure. And even if somebody's an atheist, this is becoming an issue of religious freedom. And, and I promise that although it might be affecting Christians first, it will eventually come to every other faith, because wokeism is not here to make friends with any religion. It is here to divide people, to separate them, to, you know, uh, uh, and, and really you know, create that, that uh, sort of socialist um, uh, you know, agenda and push that, that we're seeing, you know, uh, from this administration from the left right now. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your work with Epic Times, your your television work. Um, what, what can people expect if they decide to check out your show, Church and State? Absolutely. So we just finished the first season, Church and State, uh, and, you know, it, 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 12 episodes, every single episode is a fast-paced, hard-hitting, hot-button issues. We covered attacks on the church. We covered uh, pers- global persecution around the world. We talked about, uh, we did an episode on churches and drag queens, this sort of bizarre, disgusting phenomenon that we're seeing take place. Um, uh, we did an episode on, on Roe v. Wade. I mean, we, we kind of covered the gambit of topics. They're very evergreen. We're seeing a lot of people use these. Uh, uh, they're about 30-minute episodes for, for church small groups and discussion groups and these things. Uh, and the show actually at the National Religious Broadcasters, which is coming up here in May, I'm excited that we were, were able to announce it got program of the year for the uh, the faith market. And so that was wow. a, a huge accolade. So we're super excited about that and and uh, talking about, you know, plans for uh, a second season launch. Outstanding. Folks, we're on with uh, Pastor Lucas Miles, and I want you to check out his new book. Always, I always recommend getting a couple of copies, one for yourself to read and one to give away. He's the author of Woke Jesus, The False Messiah Destroying Christianity. And in the couple of minutes we have remaining, let's talk about some of your other projects. I know you've got a few different things going on in addition to the book and in addition to the television show. What do you, how are you keeping busy lately? Yeah, you know, I mentioned this pastor project. This has taken a lot of uh, a lot of our focus right now. Um, you know, we've been traveling around the country. Just met with uh, um, uh, some leaders at, at a couple major Christian universities, and and you know, and I, I deal with this within woke Jesus. We're seeing an infiltration of Christian universities as well, and so no longer are uh, you know, can you just feel comfortable as a parent sending your kid to a Christian school because that Christian school might have gone woke. And so, you know, we're really trying to to come alongside churches, universities, uh, and other kind of doctrinal centers for the faith 
uh, and, and really ensure that uh, um, there is a commitment, again, across any denomination to a biblical framework. And so the American Pastor Project has been a, a major part of our time uh, you know, with that, and uh, we're very excited to see that launch with pastors that are becoming signatories all over the country right now. And so we're, we're hoping to come to a city near you uh, uh, this year and, and really gather pastors together, uh, encourage them. And we're also looking to partner with other existing organizations out there. Uh, and, and I was just talking to uh, uh, Will Petty from Turning Point uh, Faith USA, and, and, and they're just doing some incredible stuff. And so it's just been awesome to, uh, to see what God's doing in this nation. It admits, it admits all, the, all the negative news cycles and all the crazy things that we're hearing I'm encouraged to say that I believe that God's uniting the church and that, that he is on the move. We're seeing revival break out and people's lives transformed, and it's, it's a very exciting time to be alive. And let everybody know if they want to, you know, check out the work you're doing, follow you, grab a copy of the book. Where do they go? How do they follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So Woke Jesus is available, of course, wherever books are sold, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. You can also head over to lucasmiles.org, and you can pre-order your copy there. Uh, and I also just had another project that came out. It was a compilation book um, mm-hmm. with uh, George Barna and Sam Rodriguez and some others. You can find that there as well. It was a study on on faith and millennials and really what we can do to kind of come alongside and help them. And so that actually just released today as well. So lots of exciting things to find out at uh, lucasmiles.org. What's the name of that project with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Sam Rodriguez and Barna? Yeah, so it's called Helping Millennials Thrive. Outstanding. Well, keep up the good work, my brother. Um, I, I'd love to learn more about that one on millennials because I think that's also a very, very important topic uh, in, in not only millennials, Gen Z. I mean, just the youth in general. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we have to pay extra special attention there. So I'm hoping you'll come back soon. I know you're busy, but I'm looking forward to another chat real soon. We'd love to do it. Thanks, Rich, for having me on. You got it, brother. All right, now there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to get to your calls and more. We're also going to have a little bit of conversation on what's going on with, with specifically with the calls for gun control. We've talked about the spiritual angle. We talked about the legal angle. Now I want to talk about the actual, uh, the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. Why are we calling for gun control in a time where we should probably be focused on mental health, right? So we're going to do that with John Lott. You guys know John Lott. He's the founder and president of the Crime Prevention Resource Center, and uh, he's coming up next, so don't miss that. Plus, um, Open Phone America is at the top of the next hour, so don't miss that. Open Phone America with me, Rich Valdez. We are live. We're national. It's a late-night town hall, and you get to weigh in. Keep it locked right here. More to come straight ahead. I am Rich Valdez. call for common sense gun safety legislation, including a ban on assault weapons. This is an epidemic. It's an epidemic that our great nation must solve. And how many lives will be shattered before we have the courage 
to do what Scotland did, what Australia did, what New Zealand did, what other great democracies do. That is Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, um, getting a couple of applause saying that we need to ban guns like Australia did. I find that kind of crazy considering the epidemic we're facing is one of mental health, in my opinion. Uh, But to help us make sense of it, we've got John Lott. He's founder and president of the Crime Prevention Resource Center and probably one of the the foremost experts on this topic. John Lott, welcome to the program. Well, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. You bet. You sound kind of far away, so maybe you could speak up a little bit. Tell us um, what you think of Randy Weingarten's comments. Well, you know, I know they keep pushing this assault weapons ban, and Biden did that yesterday, too, immediately after this attack. But he does that every time, whether an attack actually involved a so-called assault weapon or not. Look, We tried an assault weapons ban for 10 years, from 1994 to 2004. There's been lots of academic studies, and they haven't found any benefit in terms of reducing uh, assault weapon attacks, despite what the president will claim from time to time. And there's a simple reason for that, and that is they're trying to ban certain guns based really on how they look rather than how they function. Even the Associated Press uh, this last year and in their influential style book finally came out and said terms like assault weapons or weapons of war were very misleading and purely political terms. Look, 85% of the guns sold in the United States are semi-automatic guns. You know, that means one pulled the trigger, one bullet comes out, it reloads itself, one pulled the trigger, one bullet comes out and so on. And, you know, uh, these AR-15s or whatever are not weapons used by any militaries around the world. Even the Associated Press uh, acknowledged that. They may look like it, but they function the same as any semi-automatic hunting rifle. And so if you want to go and ban all semi-automatic guns, which, as I say, is about 85% of all the guns out there, at least there'd be some logical consistency there rather than going banning guns based solely on how they work. The problem is civilians themselves benefit a lot from having semi-automatic guns. If you banned all semi-automatic rifles, what's the alternative? The alternative is a manually loaded rifle where after you fire a shot, you have to physically yourself put another bullet in the chamber before you can fire another round. And the thing is, if you face multiple criminals uh, or if you fire and miss, or if you fire and wound but don't incapacitate the attacker, you may not have the luxury of time to go and reload the gun. There's a reason why civilians who use guns in self-defense have semi-automatic guns. You know, and so much of this discussion talks only about the cost of these guns rather than the benefits. So, you know, you can point out, for example, that people use guns defensively to stop crime about five times more frequently each year than guns are used in the commission of crime. You probably never know that just because of how the media covers these types of things. But, you know, you take something like mass public shootings. On our website at crimeresearch.org, we've, we have counted uh, 37 cases where police have said a mass public shooting was stopped just since the beginning of 2020. So, you know, people don't need to take our word for it. We have the news articles and the links, and we have the statements from the police that were there. 
that said if it wasn't for the presence of a concealed carry permit holder, many people would have died. Few of those stories get national news coverage. Even heroic stories may often get only one or two stories in the local news media. And it has a real impact on people's perceptions. But, you know, what I want to do, I want to do something that matters. Uh, you know, so Biden talks, he goes to California and he talks about an assault weapons ban. He talks about background checks on private transfers of guns. He talks about red flag laws because of all the mass public shootings that they're having in California, which is well above the national average in terms of per capita rates. California already has all those laws. It's not obvious. So what do you do to stop these things? Well, this attack yesterday occurred in yet another gun-free zone. About 94% of the mass public shootings in the United States occur in places where guns are banned. Apparently, the news came out that this murderer in Nashville had actually another target in mind, but they had decided not to go after that because they were concerned about the fact that apparently people had guns there that might be able to stop the attack. You, you look at things like the Buffalo mass murderer last year in his manifesto, and the media refuses to actually report on these parts of their manifestos, he went into great detail about why he picked the target that he did and what was his reason. He wanted to pick a target where he knew his victims wouldn't have permanent concealed handguns because he was worried if they did, that would make it much more difficult for him to kill lots of people. The and that's, it's just not him. It's just not this person on Monday. They do this time after time after time, but the media refuses to go and quote from those parts of their diaries and manifestos. You would think, given how much people care about stopping these things, you'd think it would be newsworthy for the media sometimes to go and say, well, here's why they picked the targets that they did. Here's what they were looking for. And what dissuaded them from going after another target. So it's clear that they're looking for soft targets. They're using law-abiding citizens and the law against law-abiding citizens and, and the innocent. Right. And nobody's paying any attention to that. Let me remind everybody that we're on with John Lott, founder and president of the Crime Prevention Resource Center. And research. John Lott, uh, I'm sorry, it's research, research center. Oh, I have it. It was given to me the wrong way. It says resource. Here. No problem. I, yeah. I, can I pick up on one point that you were just making? Sure. Go right ahead. And that is the, the impact that the laws have on the law abiding versus the criminal. So in, in Tennessee, if you take a, a concealed handgun into a school, uh, you face six years in jail for doing that because uh, it's a gun free zone and they enforce it with the law. For you or I, that would be a horrible penalty. Our life would be completely changed if we were convicted of that. But think of this murder. Let's say this murderer had lived and hadn't been shot by, killed by the police. Six people were killed. So the person would face six life sentences or six death penalties. Six years, while it would be a big penalty for us, what if you're going to face six life sentences in jail, is it really serious to think, well, the additional six years that would stop them from doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like no additional marginal penalty. It's they're not going to have seven lifetimes that they can go and have the other six lifetimes that they live. And so the point is that this is a real penalty for law abiding citizens. So they obey the law. 
they probably would have banned even without that big of a penalty. But the point is, is that this killer takes advantage of the fact that they know that it's not a real penalty for them, but it's a real penalty for the law body, and they and their victims are going to be disarmed. Anybody who reads the diaries or manifestos from these killers know that their goal is to get media attention. They know the more people they kill, the more media attention that they're going to get. And if they go to a place where victims can't defend themselves, they're going to be able to go and kill more people. They spell that out time after time after time. I have to, I'm forced to read these manifestos, but the media just refuses to go and give that perspective on, on these killers. And I'm not saying we need to get rid of the First Amendment. I'm not saying you should ban uh, the media from giving them coverage. But it still gives you insights into what you need to do in order to stop these attacks. And what happens is you need to have somebody there to quickly stop the attack so you can reduce the number of people who are killed or harmed so that takes away the perceived benefit of the media coverage because they know they're not going to get the media coverage if they're not able to kill many people. And so rather than having uh, a sign in front of a school that says this school is a gun-free zone, why not have a sign in front of the school that says warning select teachers and staff at this school are armed? And I'll tell you, there are 20 states, unfortunately Tennessee isn't one of those, 20 states in the United States that have armed teachers and staff. And it's, you have Utah and New Hampshire, where any teacher who has a concealed carry permit is allowed to automatically carry on school campus. You have uh, other states where you have to get the approval of the school board or the uh, school superintendent uh, to be able to go and carry. You have literally thousands of schools. And yet, in, there's not one attack of any size where people have been injured or wounded during school hours at any of those thousands of schools that have teachers carrying guns. Every single one of these attacks where somebody's been wounded or killed has occurred at schools where uh, guns are banned. All right, folks, we're on with John Lott, founder and president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Do you plan on opening a hate crime investigation for the targeting of Christians? The um, FBI and ATF are both uh, on the scene working with the um, uh, local police. Uh, as of now, motive hasn't been identified, and the police chief said at the last at his last press conference that they don't yet have reached a conclusion with respect to uh, motive. Uh, we are certainly working full time with them to try and determine what the motive is, and of course, motive is what determines whether it's a hate crime or not. 
All right, America, welcome back. That is Attorney General Merrick Garland today at a hearing, a uh, congressional hearing with Senator John Kennedy asking him uh, what he plans to do with respect to opening a hate crime. It seems that all we hear is gun control, gun control, gun control. We're not hearing anything about the mental health aspect of this, nor are we hearing about the fact that this was a uh, transgender murderer that went on a rampage at a Christian school. And uh, the attorney general, um, of course, says, not sure, won't answer, blah, blah, blah. Uh, John Lott, what type of uh, precedent do we have uh, from your perspective on shootings like this uh, also being a hate crime? Well, uh, what you find is about 75%, 75% of these uh, mass public shootings really have no political motive at all. Uh, no hate motive. You have individuals who want to commit suicide, but they want to commit suicide in a way that's going to get the media attention. Uh, and they know the more people they kill, the more media attention that they're going to get. And that's what they talk about. You you read the diaries and manifestos, and you'll continually see statements like, if I can only kill more people than such and such did, I can get even more media attention. Or you have somebody like the Sandy Hook killer. Uh, uh, according to police, what he had done was he put together essentially a doctoral dissertation. We looked at mass public shootings over 40 years and graphed out the relationship between the amount of media coverage that they got and the number of people killed. And his goal, apparently, was to go and kill more people than the Norway killer had killed. Uh, where he had shot to death 67 people, you know, ignoring the bombing deaths that he had had there. And so, you know, it's uh, uh, you, you can look at hate crimes, particularly. So like the news, New York Times and others are frequently talking about right wing, you know, uh, uh, white supremacist type being a real threat. If you look at the mass public shootings over the last 25 years, you'll find about uh, 8% involved anybody that is anti-immigrant, white supremacist, what have you. But most of those are actually environmentalists. Uh, one thing that the news media just refuses to talk about, so you take something like the uh, Buffalo mass murderer last year. Uh, the New York Times, I don't know, maybe about a dozen times has had op-eds or editorials and news articles referring to him as a a conservative right-wing type person. In fact, if you read his manifesto, it's very similar to like the El Paso mass murder and, and the uh, Cincinnati mass murder and others where he hated minorities, but he hated minorities because he was up, he thought they had too many children and that we need to reduce the population in the United States because overpopulation, according to him, was destroying the environment. And so you know, he took it out on, on that. I don't know too many conservatives that are upset about people having kids because of the environment. And right. he called himself a socialist. Uh, he called himself an eco-terrorist. You know, so again, uh, but what the media often does on these things, if somebody is a racist, the media uh, immediately classify that person as being on the right politically. Yeah, and, and it seems to be that they, they want to create a narrative where it all, all roads end with gun control and, and, a, and a ban 
that focuses on good people rather than criminals. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at these different types of laws. We're just talking about a type of ban in terms of these gun-free zones and who obeys those types of laws. But, you know, we can look at bans generally. There have been, uh, and this applies to gun control broadly, you have to be careful that when you pass these laws that they're not primarily going to disarm law-abiding good citizens and not the criminals. Every place in the world that's banned either all guns or all handguns has seen murder rates go up. You'd think out of randomness, once or twice it would go down. And yet every single time it would go up. If you really think that guns on net are bad, then it should go down regularly. But what happens is, is that when you go and you ban guns, it's the most law-abiding good citizens who turn in their weapons. Not You may take a few away from the criminals, but if you primarily disarm law-abiding good citizens, you make it relatively easier for criminals to go and, and commit crimes. And unfortunately, exactly. this, this applies to many other different types of gun controls. And, and, I, and look, if my research convinces me of anything, there's two groups of people who benefit the most from having guns. Hold that thought right there on those two groups. We've got to take a quick pause. We're coming right back with John Lott and Rich Valdez. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Valdez. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. We are on with John Lott. And John Lott, let everybody know, um, obviously, final thought, and how they could keep up with you and support the work you're doing. Well, thanks. Yeah, uh, you can go to our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org, and that has all the information that we've been talking about. Outstanding. And if people want to follow you on Twitter or any of the social media, where do they go? Well, I, I guess my social media, my Twitter is John R. Lott Jr. Uh, it's my full name, and uh, I have a similar, uh, I think it's John R. Lott for Facebook. But, uh, All right. you know, that's anyway. So uh, what I was saying before the break was the yeah, two groups two of points. people who, who, who benefit the most. One of them are basically the people who are most likely victims of violent crime. And that overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high crime urban areas. Mm. The other group that benefits the most from owning guns are people who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly. And the problem is so many of these gun control laws make it impossible for those vulnerable people to go and get guns. You have waiting periods that make it hard for a woman right. who's being stalked or threatened to quickly defend herself. You have all these speeds. All right, we'll leave it there. John Lott, I just want to thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. Um, Crime Prevention Research Center, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate you, you being there. My pleasure, Doc. Thank you. All right, folks, more to come straight ahead. Open Phone America is here. Your calls and more, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. This is the third hour of the program. If it's the first hour you're tuning in, welcome. Our telephone number is 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. If you want to get at me on social media, feel free. I do check all the comments. I try to write back as often as I can. And that's at Rich Valdez with an S on all of the social media platforms. And uh, a bunch of things I want to talk about. Of course, I want to remind you, if you missed any of the conversations tonight, if you're just tuning in, we've had some excellent conversations with uh, Pastor Lucas Miles, with John Lott. Um, and, and the top of the hour, we had uh, Attorney General Mark Brnovich from Arizona, and uh, he's the uh, AG Emeritus there. And it, it was a very eye-opening conversation, really good conversations. If you missed them, um, you can definitely listen to them again. Just go to the podcast or the replay at Rich Valdez America at Night. Subscribe to the podcast. If you don't know what a podcast is, it's just a replay of the program. I get that question a lot. So I'm just um, giving you options so you can hear it whenever you want to hear it. From wherever you are, just go to richvaldezamericaatnight.com, and you've got everything there at your disposal. Now, uh, a, an aide to Senator Rand Paul was stabbed by a man. This happened over the weekend, and I think I might have briefly mentioned it yesterday. Uh, but today it was revealed that this guy was in prison just one day earlier. So think about that for a second. We talk about letting people out for good behavior. Maybe it wasn't such good behavior, right, to go stabbing people. And I'm not trying to make light of it. Uh, in, in fact, I'm, I'm trying to draw attention to the fact that I think we let people out of prison sometimes prematurely. And if, nobody has a crystal ball. But we have to look at recidivism rates. And um, I think it's important to realize that one of the reasons we have a good society, in my opinion, and again, I know people bring up Japan and Norway and these other places, uh, but I feel like they're different, right? They're different. There's 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 different senses of tradition. There's different um, uh, ethnic majorities in these places where there is no melting pot. And I think that plays a part into it because we're multicultural here and we have these different backgrounds, different people, different beliefs. Uh, but when you have um, a situation like that, you have to have rules. And there are certain people who are not desirable and for whatever reason, mainly because they're criminals, because they don't believe in consent, you know, when it comes to like sex with women or whatever, or men, uh, you know, there are certain people who just violate the law. And these people are not fit, in my opinion, to be a part of society. So, you know, they may have paid their debt to society, but sometimes we have to reevaluate that because look, this guy gets out, doesn't even know how to act on the outside, stabs somebody in broad daylight. Horrible, absolutely horrible. So that's a question that I think um, we have to ask ourselves. Are we being too easy on the people that, uh, you know, come out of jail? And I, I don't want to throw the book at anybody unfairly. I don't. But I want to make sure that we're being fair to the rest of the world and the rest of us, the rest of humanity, when we, um, when we make these decisions. Anyway, in the next segment, I want to talk about who are the worst drivers in America? Well, there's a new uh, study that just came out. 
And I do have the answer, but I'm looking to take your calls and see who can guess it. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ. Uh, let's go to uh, Evergreen, Montana, and check in with Frank on KOFI. Frank, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Uh, hi there, Rich. Uh, gee, I couldn't tell you who the worst driver is. Sometimes I think it's me, but uh, dang, uh, I'm not. <laughs> me too. Gonna get close. I'm gonna obey all the rules. Okay, here. Anyway, uh, you know, I was on a comment about the this this Christian nation uh, kind of a reuniting this uh, church and state uh, concept. I, I really think that's where we're getting some problems here in society. It's just here, this Christian school should have their own private little God squad. You know, uh, they shouldn't bring in the FBI and the, the local SWAT team and everything. It's just, it's, uh, um, I think it's something that re- the churches got to realize. Well, I'm not opposed to the churches well, having like private security, armed security, or anything like that. But why do you think they should have their own police? Well, I mean, they. I didn't have police when I was in grade school, or, but uh, or high school, but uh, um, it was a different time back in the fifties and sixties. I mean, we sure. had nuns, but they were just as as wicked as all get out. But God, uh, I never had to end up in jail. But you know, I mean, uh, uh, dang, uh, I, you know. I guess my question is, do you think that this Christian school should have their own police because it's a Christian school, or do you think they should have their own police because every school should have their own police? I think think it's just appropriate for each each private school to handle it themselves differently, Uh, but leave the public uh, tax dollar to the public schools. And, but... You know, I, I think we're getting too confused here. I mean, uh, we've got Church of Satan. We've got all sorts of different religions. We're all not Christian. Yeah, it's just it's it's got. How does well, it, is the argument here? The underlying argument that people have to are only allowed to receive support from the local police if they're devoid of religion. No, I'm just saying it makes it hard for a, a decent policeman to make a decision when he has to comply with uh, to protect every religion no matter how evil a diversity it's against his own principles uh, I wouldn't want that job or anything yeah I guess that that's kind of how it is I would see the same thing if you know if you show up at a crack house and you know I don't know one person is raping another person and they're both on crack you know you've got to make those judgment calls where you know one person is the victim one person is the aggressor and I think that ultimately that's part and parcel of, of being a cop, whether you're called to a home that's a Christian home or a Muslim home or an atheist home and, you know, somebody's trying to hurt you or hurt someone else. You, ultimately, you know, your job is to protect and serve and to not be swayed by their religion or anything else and and just, you know, protect life and, and property because that's kind of the, the job of the police. But thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. Uh, interesting thoughts on Christian schools having their own police. I'm interested in knowing if anybody else thinks that way. Um, I think I might be in the minority here if that's the case. Anyway, give me a call, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
Brown. He's bald and he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. Give us a call. Before we uh, get to your calls, I want to share this article with you. Uh, there was a fire at a Mexico migrant facility that killed 39 people. It was reported earlier as 40 people. I guess somebody lived, thank God, in uh, a de- deportation protest, according to the President AMLO of Mexico. This fire in a migrant detention facility in Ciudad Juarez in Chihuahua, Mexico, started by the, um, I was going to say inmates, but the illegal immigrants that were there uh, protesting deportation. Uh, it's horrible. I'm looking at some of the, the footage of it right here. And um, Mexico's National Institute of Migration, who knew there was such a thing, said 39 foreign migrants died in that fire shortly before 10 p.m. local time on Monday night at this center in Ciudad Juarez in Chihuahua. The president, AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he says that the fire was started by migrants inside the facility because of their protest, saying they never imagined this would be the case. Um, It's a terrible misfortune, adding that the director of the... um, Institute for Migration was on the scene. And they said 68 men from Central and South America were staying at the facility. Of these men, 29 more were uh, illegal immigrants that were injured in the fire and transported in delicate to serious condition to four local hospitals. So there might be more, but as of now, it was reported earlier as 40 deaths. Right now, it's only 39. That's what's going on there because of the disastrous conditions at the southern border. All right, people are trying to get into America. Some are stuck in Mexico when they do, you know, when they don't fall through the safety net and they're there. And I'm supposing that this is either the Mexican government making a play or the cartel or whoever. Somebody's making a play to say, oh, you want to play rough? You want to have that remain in Mexico? You want to try and toughen up a little bit? Let me show you how it works. This is what we do to people who try to toughen up and and get things, uh, you know, uh, tightened up at, at the southern border. Uh, in reality, it's a criminal enterprise. The border is where they do their thing, right? It's their, it's their office. It's where they peddle their goods, and they're going to do everything they can to protect it. Let's go to Steve, uh, W-E-O-L, Cleveland, Ohio. Steve, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. He's listening to the weeknight. How are you, Rich? Hey, brother. What's going on, my man? Not much. Hey, um, Biden had that conference, that woman's uh, uh, work conference, uh, oh, yeah. I think it was yesterday, with uh, started out the ice cream and, uh, you know, my, uh, if you don't believe me, my refrigerator's. Uh, well, you know what? Let's you know, listen to it so that everybody else that's listening knows exactly what you're talking about. Listen to my this. My name is Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm Dr. Joe Biden's husband. And I ate Jenny's ice cream, chocolate chip. I came down because I heard there was chocolate chip ice cream. By the way, I have a whole refrigerator full upstairs. I think I'm kidding. I'm not. God. Ben, how are you, pal? One of the best guys in the United States Congress, Ben Cardin. 
And those were the opening remarks that you're talking about while he knew that there was a massacre uh, that had occurred by a uh, transgendered murderer at a Christian school. Go right ahead, Steve. Um, well, there was another show on tonight. Uh, someone said something, but it had to do with Utah signing off. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, well, tell me what um, your thoughts are on the ice cream. Firing squad. Never mind. I won't say that. <laughs> uh, what it was is what he said. How do you start something out like that? And um, if Trump was president, how how can you can compare anything like that? I mean, how did it how does it even get to be that? And basically, do you have like some nice armored doors on? on schools now, you know, maybe with some kind of transparent glass or whatever, but, and, you know, it's the private schools, the call you had before at the private schools, they should take care of it, you know, their own, because it's, it says private, but how would you do that? I mean, you know, we grew up in a normal thing, like, you know, we went to school and if you want to take, cut out half, half the day and take off your buddies and go down the park and do whatever, uh, well, okay, you had to face the next day, but that, that that's how we grew up. But you have armored doors kind of like, you know, on, on the schools instead of just the side ones you can kick in. I mean, something that's got a couple inches of uh, steel in it. And uh, how would our country be under Trump? How did it get to be like this? Yeah, well, I think this has been going on for a long time, right? We're, uh, we're on the 25th anniversary of the Columbine shooting. And, uh, and again, this public mm-hmm. versus private thing, I think what I would say there is basically – You know, if I'm in a radio studio and somebody decides to come into my radio studio, which, by the way, radio studios have relatively heavy, very heavy steel doors for soundproofing. And um, let's just say and thick glass and all that stuff. But all that being said, let's say, say somebody's in there shooting. um, You bet your bottom dollar that I'm calling the police and I'm like, you know, first I'm grabbing for my gun to shoot the guy. But if if I can't. And and or or both and right, I'm calling for the cops and I'm hoping that the good guys are coming in with long arms or the M1s, M4s, whatever they've got. And they're going to take out this bad guy who could potentially be taking out me or anybody else that's there. So I think great if it's if you can and you're a private organization and you're able to provide your own security, that's great. That doesn't mean that you're not entitled to to, you know, calling the cops, just like if you're in your private home. You know, if you're in your private business, if you're in a bakery, if you're whatever, um, you know, whether you're in a church, a synagogue, a mosque, it doesn't matter to me. If somebody's there trying to kill you or small children, absolutely the police should be responding. And I think that's the part that maybe we're we're, we're missing here. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. If they can reinforce things, super, they should. Uh, I know that, you know, some... In, in New York City, there are these um, bodegas that are all over the place that some of them are 24 hours. They do have armored everything. They have reinforced walls. They've got bulletproof glass, you know, because they're used to getting robbed. And it's been like that for 25, 30 years that I can remember my whole life. So clearly, um, when you can take a precaution to protect your business, you do. Just like, um, you know, if you go to a bank, some tellers are behind glass in some banks. Some banks are a little more open. The, the money's in a vault, very thick metal. I mean, whenever a business can take extra precaution, they should. Uh, but it doesn't change the law, and it doesn't change right from wrong. And when you have a, a, a homicidal maniac, in this case a 28-year-old woman uh, that identifies as a man and is there to kill small children and teachers and anybody else they can, according to her own text message 
to a friend of hers saying, look, I intend to die today. I'm just letting you know this is not a joke in all caps, letting, I guess, the one friend that she had know that, hey, look, I'm checking out. Here's my suicide note. I'm out of here. Um, it, it's incredibly concerning. And to think that this is about gun control when people are clearly saying, look, I'm here to die today. I'm, you know, I'm going to go kill some people as many as I can. And in the process of killing these people, they're going to kill me. And I know they're going to kill me, but hopefully I can you know, live on in infamy. And, and it's this martyrdom, it's this infamy that they seek, I guess, that makes it right or okay for them. But the bottom line here is we can't be guided by that, right? We have to, we have to make sure that we take whatever precautions we can. When, when the left starts saying, you know, do we want our kids going to, to schools that feel like prisons? My kids have never been in a prison. My kids don't know what a prison looks like, but my kids are old enough and smart enough to realize that, you know what, um, we have a cop outside the school, we have a cop inside the school because, you know, it keeps the school safe. And if you have to have a reinforced steel door that's bulletproof all around the building and it costs some extra money, then I guess it's going to cost some extra money. If those are the precautions you can take, then you should take them. And, and I'm, I'm all for it. I, I, don't, I don't see uh, how or why that would make a student feel like they're in prison. When I was in sixth grade, that was the first time I'd left grammar school and gone to what they called intermediate school. I went to IS 240, uh, Andreas Huddy. It's on Nostrand Avenue in Brooklyn. That was the first school I'd ever gone to. So again, I was, I don't know, 11 years old, maybe, sixth grade, and um, they had metal detectors. That To get into school every day, you had to walk through metal detectors like you would at a, an airport. And I think to myself, man, um, you know, that's how it was when I was in sixth grade. And it was in sixth grade that I moved in the, the fourth quarter of the year, the fourth marking period. Uh, we moved across the river to the Jersey side of the Hudson River. And uh, there was nothing here, right? There were no metal detectors. There was no cop in the school. There was none of that. It was very nice, and it still is. Jersey is so much, uh, I always say it's a very clean version of New York where I live in North Jersey. So uh, I think, yeah, let's do it all, but the cops should respond no matter what because that's how it should be. Anyway, Steve, thanks. That means I got to go the music, but always appreciate your compliments and your kind words. And we're going to get to the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. 833-4-VALDES, 833-4-VALDES. That's 482-5337. We're coming right back. Keep it locked right here. Don't go anywhere. said uh, that the shooter has been identified as 28-year-old female Audrey Hale, said she's a former student of the school, and confirmed that Audrey Hale was a, identified herself as a transgender person. Uh, at state of Tennessee earlier this month passed and the governor signed a bill that banned transgender medical care for minors, as well as uh, a law that prohibited adult entertainment, including male and female impersonators after a series of drag show controversies in that state. So 
there is a correlation, and again, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, I don't know, uh, between the recent change in the law in Tennessee and this particular shooting. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I would venture to probably say I doubt that there is, only because we've seen shootings like this before, and they weren't the result of, of whatever law. They were always the result of people being nuts. And when you're nuts and you hate life and you want to destroy all the lives around you and as many as you can on your way out, well, that's exactly what happens. You, you do that and you, you try your best to get it done. And lamentably, this person was able to take six people with them before um, they were put out of their own misery by the police. And kudos to the police. Always back in the blue here. You know, I got brothers. Two of my brothers were on the job and um, I always wanted to be a cop and they always talked me out of it. So I ended up doing some volunteer work and going to an abbreviated police academy to be part of the police reserve in uh, the town I lived in for a few years. And, um, you know, great, great experience in so much as I did court duty and some parades and some traffic stuff. Um, and not traffic stops, like traffic directing. <laughs> and uh, But you get to help out, and, and it's an extra set of eyes and ears, and you get to be trained on the use of force and things like that. So I learned a lot. But it, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting time where you see how heroic these cops were. You know, the bullets are flying at them, and they just keep charging in. They just keep charging in until they took out this person that was taking out these little kids. And, uh, again, I, I can't give them enough kudos for doing that. Let us go to Sedona, Arizona, listening to KDGO in Durango, Colorado, because he likes that station online. Pat, Pat in Sedona. What's up, my man? You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hey, Rich. How you doing? You know, uh, I, I cannot uh, put more emphasis on what you've said about the police at the moment of crisis, how, how they entered that building and they went towards danger. They didn't go away from danger. They heard gunfire and they went towards it. Those are brave individuals. I mean, it's, I mean, you think about that thing down in Texas and they waited and you just don't wait. Yeah, and you know that you bring up Texas. I wasn't going to bring it up, but let me just chime in here, Pat. I remember seeing the video, and I remember they had ballistic shields, and some of them were, like, in full, like, SWAT gear. Some of them weren't. Uh, but these guys weren't, right? These guys were jumping right out of their patrol cars and going right into this thing. You know, one the, the guy in lead, he had a shotgun, which I think is probably one of the best guns you could have in, in a situation like that because, you know, you're likely not going to miss. But... That was, um, to me, one of the first things I noticed. I said, wow, look at a handful of guys. Some of them were local cops. I think some of them were county sheriffs. And uh, they went in there, and they cleared that room by room. And it seemed to be a pretty big school. And uh, the next thing you know, shooter was down. And uh, what, a, what a breath, right? What a sigh of relief that none of them got hurt in the process and that they were able to do it quickly. I heard some people criticizing their response time today. And maybe that's something that's worthy of criticism. Uh, I don't know how long it took them to get there, how long the call went in, what it, what it took and what it didn't take. And maybe we'll look at that. But as of right now, I say I tip my hat to them. They're heroes. I mean, yeah, people do not understand when it comes to police work. Because I've done ride-alongs uh, where I used to live in Colorado with the police. I had a lot of friends on the force, small-town force, you know, not very many people, about 20. And uh, I tell you what, they're humans. They're human beings. They have wives. They have children. And these, these you know, they're all sorts of things, you know, human factor. And they did a great job. But uh, really the reason why I called was I wanted to talk about this person. Now, let me make sure I've got this right. This is a young lady who wanted to be a man, right? Identified as a man. That's correct. 
Okay, but uh, was going through hormone therapy and and all the uh, stuff. I don't know what they were going through, so I can't speak to that. I just know that they identified as he, him in terms of their pronouns. Okay, so this this person may have or may have not been on hormone therapy. And what I would like to add is this kind of proves about the uh, the, the type of therapy they do to change the structure into a male dominant kind of uh, a human being is there is what we call like it's like uh, steroid rage it's this hormone rage and ah. this girl this girl was so unbalanced as it was because uh, they had no self-identity and you know as a, as a girl that wanted to be a boy I mean they just they just didn't know what uh, who or what they were and uh, if they were under this type of therapy and, and drugs it just made the whole thing worse. And I just think we've got to stop, step back, take a step back from this. Because, you know, you had a gentleman call back a little while ago, a week last week named Ed, I think it was. He was a transgender person. And my hat's off to this gentleman to call in. And he talked plain and exact about the whole situation about transgender. And I think everybody's rushing to to uh, the end of what they want. They want don't want to be a boy anymore. They want to be a girl. They want to be a girl, and they want to be a boy. I think everybody should stop and think it out, and I, that's why I, I'm saying right now, I don't think anybody under the age of 18 or even 21, but 18 at least, shouldn't go into this therapy, should not. I'm with you, brother. I think, and and again, I don't know why. Maybe there's some reason against it. If you're a doctor, uh, give me a call and try to school me. Because I think if you have a son uh, or a daughter and your son or daughter tells you, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm, I'm trapped in the wrong body. I think you take your kid to the doctor, you get them whatever help that you can get them. And, and the help that they seem to be giving is to say, let's turn you into the girl that you feel like, or the boy that you feel like, instead of let's help you to, to, to be more effective as the boy that you were born to be or the girl that you were born as. And, and again, maybe this is just my flawed fundamental thinking, but I'm thinking if there really is some sort of imbalance, a hormonal imbalance, and maybe the boy doesn't have enough testosterone or he's got too much estrogen or vice versa, the girl has too much testosterone and not enough estrogen, and, and there's some sort of endocrine imbalance, uh, to me it makes sense to try to fix that. Uh, as opposed to introducing a new hormone and, you know, to have the girl grow a beard and potentially go for a double mastectomy and, and, and other types of, um, you know, uh, genital surgery or, or, or um, reconfiguration that I think is, is, to me, it's just very far-fetched. And uh, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. But good point, Pat. I totally, uh, I think you're, you're, you're on to something. Let us uh, continue. Let's go to Ventura, California, KVTA. Patty, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hello, Rich Valdez. What's in the S? That's me. <laughs> love you. I love your feeling there for Jim. Uh, Thank you. I grew up in Idaho. I'm now in California, but I grew up in Idaho. When I was going to high school, everybody, you know, all the dudes, they had the trucks with the gun racks. They had shotguns. There were no mass shootings. As far as I can, you know, what I've deduced is the weapon of mass destruction in our society today is social media and woke media. Hmm. And your previous caller hit on a couple of things, but I, I, I'm so sick and tired of them 
trying to indoctrinate our children into thinking, oh, you don't really know if you're a girl or a boy. Whoever this person was at 28 years old, living at home, buying seven guns, uh, there is a lot more to it than just estrogen or testosterone. Okay? Oh, yeah. I agree. I think that's just a start. Uh, clearly, there's there's some mental illness. There's there's a serious rebellion. There's, there's a whole lot of issues. And and it's really unfortunate. And, you know, I, I never want to sound like um, I don't care for for these people because I do feel badly that they go through whatever they go through. But when you put me in a position where I have to choose between three innocent nine-year-olds and three innocent school staff members and this person, that at this point, that person becomes a monster, whether they're a transsexual or they're straight or they're whatever and what have you. And they have to be killed. They have to be put down. They have to be stopped in order to protect the children. And, and I think that's a fair assessment that I, I, I can't imagine somebody arguing against that. But we'll see if anybody does. And, and I think that's lamentably the situation we're in. Um, it doesn't mean I don't care for people that that do have this mental illness. Uh, I hope that we fix it. And that's why I probably talk about it every single day. I'm not trying to ridicule them. Somebody left me a comment online a little while ago. If I could find it fast enough, I will. But basically they said, stop stoking hate against uh, transgender individuals. And I thought, I'm not trying to stoke hate for anybody. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, here it is. This is Sinister Porpois. I can't even say it. Sinister Porpois is the read, is their, their handle on Twitter. And it says, try not to ratchet up hatred against transgender people because of a news report that doesn't quite seem right unless you want all cisgender people judged by the number of school shooters they have produced. I guess uh, that that's fair. Uh, but uh, to me, the focus is on mental illness. And at last I checked, cisgender, which I think is called straight, is not a mental illness. And last I checked, being trans is one, right? At least according to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 4th Edition, which is the most recent one. So, Patty, I think you're right. There's a lot more to it than meets the eye. Social media. Social media and the wokeness, they're the mass, 100%. The mass destruction. Thank you. You're welcome, Patty. Thank you for the call from KVTA, Ventura, California. And we're going to continue our journey straight across America, getting your opinions and thoughts on all of the news of the day. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here on Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. So there's a new study out, and the question is, who has the worst drivers in the country? We're going to take your calls on that, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Now, according to the um, News 4 in Jacksonville, listen to this. The study cites that the average number of driving deaths per year is at 100,000 residents, and in Jacksonville, that's 10.9 each year, 165% more than the national average, which makes Jacksonville the city with the worst drivers in America. Wow. Now, 
in breaking news. So, yes, Jacksonville is the city with the worst uh, drivers in the nation. But there's more as you keep going. And they say they have a um, one, one in five drivers is uninsured. That's 54% higher than any other city that was studied in the country per this particular uh, survey. But it gets better. There's, it lists a few other cities. But the cities with the best drivers, listen to this. Drum roll. New York City, Minneapolis, Salt Lake City, Boston, and San Francisco. Those top the list with the best drivers. New York City, what, what? Big shout out to WFAS. Unbelievable. I could not have imagined that that would be the case. Being there's so many people that take public transportation in New York City. But, yes, that is, in fact, the case. And uh, I don't think anybody was going to get this right. I don't think anybody was going to call and say, it's got to be Jacksonville. It's definitely going to be Jacksonville. I don't think anybody was going to say that because who would have known that, right? I mean, I've driven through Jacksonville maybe one time, and uh, I didn't think anything of it. It didn't strike me as the worst uh, drivers in America. But let's see what Tony has to say about that. Tony's in Frederick, Maryland on WFMD. Tony, go right ahead. Welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Sure. Yeah, good morning, Gar. Good afternoon. Good evening to you, sir. Uh, in nineteen in nineteen seventy seven, there were two school shooting uh, two school shootings in the country of Israel. After those two incidents, and it was a, obviously it was a Palestinian Islamic against a, 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 trying to kill a Jewish child. But after those two incidents happened in nineteen seventy seven. Uh, you know, it, it's never happened again since 1977 because the teachers are armed in Israel. They haven't had one school shooting in Israel since those two incidents in 1977. Why? Because they arm these the teachers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, here we're sending money to the Ukraine and we're paying for this climate accord nonsense. We could be funding schools to have uh, have them paid to, to, to go to a firing range or just to be ready, just to be Yeah, armed. listen, I agree uh, with you. And, and, I think and, we should be arming teachers. Uh, teachers should be ready to go. Silly! It's foolish, and it's just, it hurts to see a, a youth like this happen. And um, anyway, we just we're doing a good job, and keep it up. And uh, but we've got to arm teachers. An armed society is a kind society, my friend. Thank you. I believe that too. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate your kind words. Let us continue uh, very quickly with Sarah Bedford, Indiana, WBIW. Go right ahead. Uh, great show. I find it ironic that you're being accused of rationing up the hate. The left wing media, and I listen to a lot of left wing media, has been rationing up. A lot of alarm and panic uh, concerning legislation that was passed in Tennessee concerning drag acts, mm-hmm. being adult entertainment, and so on. You know, okay. So just say there is a correlation with this shooter that her manifesto reveals that she is acting out against that legislation rather than blaming the victims and saying that they inside the violence. Why don't they recognize it for the political act of terror that it is? Now, this is hypothetical. If the shoe were on the other foot and there was legislation passed that was LGBT plus, you know, uh, favored, and someone went up and shot one of their habitués, they would be the first to condemn it, you know. So, yeah, good point. I, I, you I know, if it were the other way around, they'd say it's open season on on the, on the trans movement, and these are hate crimes. But when it's against Christians, and you go to a Christian school and shoot up little girls, uh, then that that is not a hate crime. 
And to hear the attorney general of the United States say that, you know, he wasn't sure. I mean, if anything else, do you want to say we're definitely looking into that? Every We're exploring every option. But no, he didn't say that. He, you know, he just he, he was he was a coward, in my opinion. The guy's a disgrace. Anyway, thank you, Sarah. They're telling me it's time for me to take a break. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to come right back. We're going to take a few more calls straight across America. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. No hair, no care, and live on the air, it's Rich Valdez. All right, let's go to Dave in Columbia, Missouri, KFRU. Dave, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead, quickly. How you doing, Rich? Hey, this, Wonderful, uh, sir. I just want to let you know I commute between Mexico, Missouri, and Columbia, Missouri, and uh, I get in the car every night at 1130, listen to to you on my trip home, which is about awesome. a 45 minute drive. You make it a lot shorter and I appreciate everything you do. Oh, I just well, thank wanted you, to call and let you know, I just wanted to call and let you know, I believe that the time between uh, what the, they got the call on that shooting uh, and they had the, the threat was uh, eliminated was like 14 minutes, which yeah. I think is very phenomenal. Yeah. Very well, phenomenal. some people are saying that the the uh, the national response time should be between three and seven minutes and that they don't understand why it took a full 14 minutes. And, and look, I mean, great if you want to try and tighten that gap and do better next time. Um, and if there was something that was operationally wrong, then they should address it. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I, I saw those men doing what they did. Right. I saw six or seven men. With 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 a shotgun, with a handgun, with a with a, some sort of um, it looked like an M1 maybe from the camera angle I saw, going in there, taking fire, clearing room after room, and they out this bad guy, right? Bad guy who happened to be a bad girl, and a 28 year old woman who who had murdered three children and three school staff, and and to me I I could not have been more relieved that they had eliminated the threat and that other children weren't going to be hurt, that none of the rest of the officers were going to be hurt. And I guess it rubs me the wrong way when I hear a critique like that, but I guess it's a question that has to be asked. And, and you're right. They got there in 14 minutes. It was record time. And, uh, and I'm glad that they did. Anyway, I apologize. The music means we have to go. I know we had calls in Connecticut calls in Jefferson city, Missouri. Shout out to bill on KFRU. Big shout out to James on WLAD. Call back tomorrow if you can. I'm out of time tonight. The producer here, you'd believe, you wouldn't believe how mean he is. When that clock hits a certain time, he kicks me off the air. Anyway, hasta la próxima. Until the next time, America, I am Rich Valdez. Take care. Good night. God bless. We're going to do it all again tomorrow. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.